So if you notice a theme that's running uh, with some of the movies that are out in the last handful of years, in fact, that's probably not all that new, but certainly seems like it's uh, become more and more pronounced. Uh, lots and lots of films about apocalyptic subjects, end times subjects. And you'll notice this if you go to watch those films. I normally don't go to watch those films because, you know, in like three days I'll be able to just get them on Netflix, and so I'm not going to go pay 11 bucks to, uh, <clears throat> to watch. 11 bucks and the, the uh, bucket of popcorn, which is, um, it costs you 12 bucks and takes about $30 worth of time off your life every time you eat one. But the, the theme of apocalyptic um, films, so the, the genre of apocalyptic films, and here's the, th the problem I have, one of the problems I have with those films, is you'll notice that if you go to these films, they're always sort of focused on the most titillating uh, uh, issues and the, the most provocative issues, the most interesting, sort of intriguing parts of apocalyptic themes. What's going to happen? How's the world going to end? What comes first? What comes next? Who, oh, big one. Who's the Antichrist? I mean, the Antichrist, uh, it's introduced in, what, Revelation 20 or so, uh, is always a, a main player in these films. You ever notice that? And they, they talk about um, end of the world and uh, different uh, meteorites coming down and all this uh, kind of stuff. That's my problem with these films. One of my problems is they always deal with simply the facts that revolve around or are involved with the end times. And the pastoral problem I have uh, with the genre of films is sort of could be encouraging uh, the church to do the same thing. When you're talking about the end times, and that is our subject for this morning in this, this uh, Theology Matters, Big Worlds That Make a Big Difference, Big Words That Make a Big Difference series, Talking about the end times, or the big word is eschatology. When you're talking about the end times, there's really, there are basically two movements in the discussion and study of the end times, or study of eschatology. There's the what, which is what most of these films deal with. But then there's the part of it that I think is a much better investment of time. There's the so what. The what and the so what. Unfortunately, many Christians spend most of their time on the what in pursuit of elusive details and understandings that have evaded much better theological minds uh, than ours for centuries. Yet, we still find ourselves going to the same place that the films go, and it's because it's an interesting topic. I mean, the, the sheer uh, intrigue of the subject of how the world will end and what the Bible says about Gog and Magog and this and that does half the work of keeping you interested. I had somebody come between services and say, um, between gatherings, and we were in the kitchen, and he said, you know, it's kind of like, and he meant this in not vulgar terms, but um, he said, you know, doing, I, I get you. That that's, sucks you in. It's kind of like uh, Bible pornography. You get all caught up in the who is this, what's next, what's next, when is it going to end, who's coming this, will the tribulation happen while the church is still here, uh, what does this mean, what's that figure mean? He said it's so, it's, it, captures, it captures you, and you can't really quit thinking about it. You can just become like addicted to the details of this study. But when we become addicted to the details of that study, most of the time, Christians are addicted to the what, the facts, 
the information at the expense of the more important question, the better use of time, when we're talking about eschatology or the study of the end times, at the expense of the so what. It's the so what that's actually the better use of time. If we're not careful, obsessing on the what of eschatology, in other words, the who is the Antichrist, when is Jesus going to return to remove us from this mess? When do we get our evacuation notice? When do we get to have, uh, uh, you know, watch and wave at those who are left behind as we float away and they're left to whatever they're uh, left to? Those are the kinds of things that, are, you know, the, 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 the what's. If we're not careful, obsessing on the what of eschatology can keep us from the more important issues of the so what. The so what gets a lot less time than the what. Does that make sense to you? That's a pastoral concern we all share. All of your pastors uh, here at Marin Covenant, we talk about these things. In fact, yesterday I was bouncing some ideas off of Jeff. I'm thinking about this in today's message. What do you think? And uh, how would you approach that? And here's how I was thinking of approaching it. And that's, that's a common conversation for uh, our preaching team, and I depend on Jeff and Ben a lot. Uh, but realizing that discussion, he, he's as passionate about this uh, as I am, this concern that we not get so caught up in trying to figure out information and details about the end times that we skip right over the more important question of the relevance of all of that, te that teaching. So as we launch into a brief uh, encounter with today's big word, eschatology, or the study of the end times, or end things, or last things, we'll touch on some of the what. Kind of have to touch on some of the what. I just want to reference it, though, because there are plenty of books out there that can introduce you to the thousands of different interpretations of the things that are listed in apocalyptic or eschatological liter literature like Daniel, Book of Daniel and the Book of Revelation, and dip, uh, it dips in and out of uh, some of the different epistles uh, and uh, different places. There are plenty of books and commentaries, and if you're really interested in figuring out, trying to figure out all the details of the what's, we just recommend that you go ahead and get some books and read, and you'll end up being as confused as we are after 30 years of theological study. So you have fun with that. But when it comes to the so what, the question of what difference does it make when I understand something of what's going on with eschatology, now that's a good use of time. That's where we're going to focus today. So if you're hoping to leave here this morning knowing whether or not uh, the bear of Revelation 13 really does represent Russia, or who all the characters are in Daniel's visions in Daniel 7 and 8, or if there's any way the Mayan calendar maybe does overlap with scriptural teaching and 2012 is the end of uh, the age, if you're hoping to leave with more understanding on that kind of stuff, you're just going to be disappointed today. Because it's, it's the so what that deserves the bulk of our time and attention. And that's where we're going to focus. Okay? All right. Because, I mean, frankly, just between, just between us, when it comes to all the details of the end times as it's put forth in some of the classic literature what all that stuff means, I have absolutely no idea. I know the broad brush stuff, 
but I cannot tell you what the details. That's apocalyptic literature. That's, that's figurative literature. The author presented it as figurative literature. And you cannot interpret figurative literature the same way you interpret clear didactic literature. Uh, that's like going to a painting and interpreting it by means of the rules you would use to interpret what's growing in a Petri dish. You, it's not that easy to figure out what different things mean uh, in figurative literature, but it's relatively easy to, to see the main movements uh, of the literature, but you've got to stay open uh, to understanding things because just about every generation of Christians, uh, every generation of theologians has thought they had all that stuff figured out, and many of you have read their books only to come up wrong. I mean, really, it's a little bit arrogant to think that we're going to figure out a date and a time and know what's going on in details that Jesus said he didn't even know. But the so what and some of the major understandings of what's going on as the end of time as we know it approaches, now that, there's something there for us to consume and to benefit from. So let's jump into this. We every week have been using the same outline. Basically, two movements. You should have paper in your, uh, in your messenger there, your bulletins, to, if you want to take notes. The big word, what is it? We'll study a little bit about that. And, uh, and then the big difference. What difference does that big word, big word make? So today's big word, as I've already said, is eschatology. It's made up of two words. Eschatos, which means last. And logia, which means discourse or study. So the ology part is the discourse or study. So it's the study of the last. How is this present age going to wind down uh, to an end? And when you're looking at that study, uh, one thing you do realize is that there are seasons or movements that are going to occur as we move toward the culmination of current human history. That's a very broad brush statement. But some, those seasons and movements have different names attached to them. For instance, you have seasons of, there's a season of tribulation. We don't know all the details about what that means, so be careful interpreting that. But there's a season of tribulation. There's a, a movement of the return of Christ. So we have the second advent. The first advent, or the first showing up, in other words, was Jesus at Christmas. God comes, first advent, touches down on earth. And now we look to a return in some fashion uh, of, of Christ. So the second advent, there's a season. There are, there are movements and understanding uh, what's going on in the culmination of human history. We know that there's a reference, there's, some, there's going to be a season of demolition and rebuilding of current earth. Uh, 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 the new heavens and a new earth are coming, or a new Jerusalem uh, is coming. So what we know currently is going to be finished, done away with, and then something new is going to replace it, something new and perfect. Uh, this different seasons and different movements. Uh, in Revelations 20, you have introduction of concepts like the millennial kingdom. What in the world does that mean? It means a thousand-year reign of some kind. But remember, it's figurative language, and theologians have been arguing forever. Uh, is the millennium a literal uh, thing we enter at some point, the end of time, or is it a figurative Millennial, uh, you have amillennialists, premillennialists, postmillennialists, millennialists, but there's something called the millennial kingdom. You're not going to walk away from here today getting information from me that helps you understand, 
I only have suspicions and interests in the millennial kingdom, but I don't know what in the world it's talking about. I want my kingdom experience now <clears throat> from God. You have the introduction of the topic of Satan being doomed. Uh, so we know that one day, this constant temptation and the dark, the, the evil that we, um, the darkness in which the world stumbles, and the author of it, and the one ultimately responsible for it, will be silenced and, um, and muted, done away with, doomed, and we look for that day. You have Judgment Day, where, where our lives are uh, brought before God and we're held accountable for the way we've lived. You have the introduction of that concept that's in many of the apocalyptic movies, the mark of the beast, and who is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist's primary prophet. Daniel 7 and 8 uh, is another place, as I've mentioned earlier, where Daniel comes out of walking through the fire and our lion's den, and comes and has these two visions in chapter 7 and chapter 8, and everybody agrees that those are apocalyptic or eschatological visions, something that has to do with what's coming down the pike in history, and we recommend those to you. But the main point is there are seasons and movements as we move toward culmination of current human history. We're saying get some books and read on that, have fun with that. It's all part of scriptural teaching, so it's all important. We don't mean to minimize that. But the most important thing to know about the study of the end times, this, this eschatological study, is that it's really about the future of the world. It's about the future of the world and how the way we live today is affected or informed by what will be coming. Think about that. That's something you could miss pretty easily because you're talking about the study of the end times. It's actually the study of the future of the world. It's the study of how this present age that's pretty broken is going to wind down and then transition and then what's coming after this. Eschatology is a study of the future, part of which is the end of this age. It's a transition. I mean, it's a transition to the world of which we all dream the one to which we all aspire, the one we try to emulate even now, the one we long for now. It's a study of the future and how the way we live today is affected by or informed by that future. Do you see how we're moving into now the so what? When we look at eschatology. So that's the first point under that first movement, the big word, that there are seasons and movements uh, another point to make under this first part of the outline, uh, the big word, is this second point, that eschatology is more about our future than about our end. It's a study of a transition, really. You uh, have glimpses, we have glimpses into what that future is going to look like. So God created heaven and earth and people and everything that occupies the earth. There was a fall, a stumble, and, and uh, it became our propensity to run from God and not want to be yielded to Him and all of that. And then we've been working in the context of that brokenness ever since. And if you haven't experienced that brokenness directly somehow, uh, then I don't know how to relate to you. And God is in the process now of restoring what was broken. And He has it in mind for there to be a new creation, I assume that is more like what he initially intended 
than what we have after everything broke. It's about our future more than it is about our end. And you have glimpses into what that looks like. For instance, in Isaiah 2. Now, mind you, not all theologians are going to agree that uh, each of these texts is about the coming world. Many will, maybe even most. But at very least, you have some insight from these texts, whether they apply simply to Israel at some point in time or to what God intends to do for all of human creation. You get some idea of what he values and what he longs for and dreams for, uh, for humanity and for the world. In Isaiah 2, if you want to follow along, I didn't make slides for these texts, so if you want to follow along uh, in the Bible, and I encourage it, grab one from underneath the seat in front of you, and I'll give you the page numbers as we go. This one is on page 632, Isaiah chapter 2. And it says this in verse 2. And again, here are some glimpses into that future, because eschatology is about our future, not our end. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 2, page 632, if you have the Pew Bible. In the last days, verse 2, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. Remember, we're in figurative language here as well. And all nations will stream to it. Many people will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, uh, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. I think there of the promise that God is going to put his ways in our heart and he'll actually indwell us and uh, we'll long for those teachings. Back to the text in Isaiah. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord uh, from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. Wouldn't that be nice? And then look at this. This is the world that God longs to create when he recreates. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. Nor will they even have to train for war anymore. Anybody wish they could live there. That's the future God intends for us. And eschatology, in part, is a recognition of the fact that we are being moved along in history and there will be this transition. But that gives us some insight into the world God's going to create when he creates what's later called the new heaven and the new earth, it seems to me. Now listen, I could be so dead wrong on all of these details. It's just that open-ended. So I'm preaching this stuff. I don't want to take away any force of what I'm saying, but I mean, please, eat the meat and spit out the bones and understand that there's several different approaches to this. This is just the way I see it. A glimpse into that future because eschatology, eschatology is more about our future than our end. You have 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, which is a major text. You're looking at, at uh, end times texts. Again, a glimpse into that future. Uh, all of you understand, so the context is the last days. Above all, verse 3, 2 Peter 3, page 1127. Above all, understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. I'm telling you, if that's the only measurement that we've introduced ourselves to the last days, the last days have been here since the first human being. And they've been here for a long time, but that's coming. And maybe there's some intensified sense of that. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning, the beginning of creation. I mean, it's like they're starting to yawn. They're never coming. Jesus isn't returning. There's no second advent. Dude is taking forever. Nothing's changed. 
But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being. The earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged, deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. They're going to be uh, purified by fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So this wonderful commentary on what it's like to live in a context where there's no such thing as time. There's no such thing as impatience. There's no such thing as waiting. Nothing seems late because those are all time concepts. Everything's just a now. And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return. As some understand slowness, here's what's actually going on, Peter says. Instead, he's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's like when you're going on a trip and you leave 10 minutes late. Why is dad always late? He's never going to leave. He's not late. He's waiting so that all the kids can have time to get ready and everybody can have a chance to get in the van and go. Works for me. He's not slow. Again, the context is still the end times. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Bam, there it is. And the heavens will disappear with a roar. There's that reconstruction, that purification, that destruction. And the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything uh, done in it will be laid bare. And then if you'll jump to verse 13, read this. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth. And here's the uh, future glimpse that we get into. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where rightness dwells. Where shalom dwells. Where everything fits in its place finally. The thing we've all been longing for in our own lives, in our own country, in our world, where everything that everything is as it should be, is that as it was always intended to be. That's the future God has for us. Eschatology is a study not of the end and the blowing up of everything and meteorites crashing into the earth and all the exciting study that goes with that. It's the study of not our end, but our future. And the transition from this age to what's going to follow this age. And the new heaven and the new earth God's going to create is the one we've been dreaming about all of our lives. No oppression. No racism. No sexism. No unfair treatment. It's a world of opportunity where people have a chance to fulfill their dreams and they are big and great dreams, the kinds of dreams that God whispers in a person's ear. There's kindness and rightness. There's no poverty. There's no greed. There's no misuse of power. There's no arrogance. There are people saying, there's my king and I'm wonderfully at peace being yielded to him. There's, there's no ruining and raping of the environment that God created. It's a perfect world, a new heaven and a new earth. 
Are you hungry yet? Eschatology, the study of the last things, is actually the study of future things. And we get some glimpse into that. You look again at Revelation 21. You want to read uh, Ubra figurative language. Uh, You have the idea of the streets of gold and the new Jerusalem and all that. Go read Revelation 21. Read it loosely, but you get some sense for the beauty God has in store for what comes after this is done. Okay, so the big word, eschatos, last, lagia, the study of the last things. There are seasons or movements in that when we study the what. But we're remembering, secondly, that eschatology is more about our future than it is about our end. It's something of a misnomer to talk about the destruction of the end of time uh, or the end of humanity. It's actually a transition time and it's a study of the future. And the third point I'll make under this primary main point is that you'll find if you look at the biblical writers when they're discussing the end times or eschatology, biblical eschatology is focused on how we should now live in response to what the end of the age holds. They are never satisfied, the apostles and the writers of Scripture, never satisfied by saying, how cool, let's just learn about what comes first and what comes second and what comes next and who the, who's this and who's that and what this represents and that represents. They're never satisfied with that. Virtually every time they reference the end of this age, they challenge their readers with some version of the question, since you're sure that's true, how should we be living today? That's the so what of eschatology. How should we then live? It's the question Francis Schaeffer asked years and years ago, the question that Chuck Colson re-asked a handful of years ago, and one we ought to be asking ourselves every day. How should we then live? In 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12, remember I left those out. I asked you to jump right down to 13. But in 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12, so the context is still the end times, he says this, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? In other words, since everything's going to be purified, there's going to be a transition What you see now is not always going to be seen. Things are coming that are really, really different. And since all of that's true, what sort of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So you have this connection with what's going to happen to this age, what's going to replace it, and the question of, okay, since all that's true, how how should we live? The so what... As you look forward to the day of God, speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And then the text goes on right from there. But we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And again the question, okay, so how are you going to change the way we're living? Because we know what's coming. In Jude, uh, Jude is one of those rare books where the first chapter and the last chapter are the same chapter. In other words, it has one chapter. Page 1135, if you want to go there, and I'll begin reading at verse 17. But again, another example of the emphasis on how to live between now and the end of days being more important to the Bible writers than understanding all the details of the end of days. 
Jude says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, and so then you have an introduction to the context of eschatology, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. She's talking about actually what last week's topic was. These are people who aren't opening themselves up to the filling of the Holy Spirit, and they're following just whatever comes to mind, you know, in, on their worst day, and the natural inclinations of humanity that's unchecked, instead of being refreshed and renewed and changed and listening to the ways of the Spirit of God. But He says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love's as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I love that. Now Jude is aligning the idea of the last days with an act of mercy on God's part. The the measurement of mercy. And be merciful to those who doubt. This is a good message for the church of today. We're so prone to arrogance and to look down our noses at people. I mean, I did it last night. Last night. I'll probably not get through this day without that prejudice, that pitiful, sickening arrogance coming up again. But last night, Brenda and I were at her cousin's party, 50th birthday party in Sacramento, and I spent probably half of my time there looking down my nose at the people who were there. These are not my kind of people. Really. I mean, we're that sick, aren't we? And the Holy Spirit spent half the night saying, you, you really think I love you more than I love her? Come on, Art. You are not more precious to me than anyone else in this room. You've got to get over yourself. I don't love you more than I love her. I don't lose sleep over you any more than I lose sleep over her or him. Drunk or sober, they're precious to me. Good message for us. And Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. Not judgmental toward those who doubt. Save others by rescuing them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by your corrupted flesh. That's an extreme statement trying to get a point across. But again, Jude, emphasizing a connection between the study of the last days, the last things, and the way we live today. Biblical eschatology is focused on how we should live now in response to what the end of the age holds for us. Just to remind you where we are in this outline. We're still on the first main point, the big word. Reminds you that it comes in movements and seasons. That It's more about our future than our end. And it's focused on how we should live now in response to what the future holds. The last example is on page 1100 in your pew Bible. comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul is instructing his apprentice pastor, young Timothy. And again, you see this clear connection between the end times, study of eschatology, and the way we live now. He says, but you, man of God, and there's this big contrast here, the way people were living and thinking, and now Paul's challenging Timothy. But you... Man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
Keep fighting the good fight of the faith. Take hold, which by the way is the only appropriate fight for us. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, Paul's saying, make it more than a concept. Take hold of it. Dig in deep to what you professed. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who will who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to talk about eschatology. But the emphasis has been live like this until that day. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own, I almost want to add the word sweet time, God will bring it about in his own time. The blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. All of that ignited by the challenge to Timothy, live like this while you're waiting for that. Let that inform the way you're living now. That's the big word. But as we say each week, the things we're studying, they're not just big words. They're big words that make a big difference. Now, as I was looking through these last night and then preaching them earlier this morning, I realized, man, I really have only one big difference. Stated four different ways. I thought, I'm pretty passionate about this because uh, I didn't plan it that way. But I let it stay that way. So humor me, will you? You're going to hear the same thing, really, four ways, I think. And you've already heard the big difference. So this is a reiteration, really. The first is this. Our infatuation with the end times should be less about what, when, and how things will happen, and more about how we might live now in accordance with what will one day be. How we might live now in accordance with what will one day be. In other words, how will the world end is a much less helpful question than how should we live in light of what we know about the eschaton. Make sense? So, as pastors, we would say to you, enjoy studying the Bible, even these intriguing subjects like the end times. But give care to making sure that we don't get so caught up in all the exciting details um, that we forget the main point. The main point being the so what. The what's fun, and it's scripture, so it's important. But the so what is essential. And oftentimes, the so what of eschatology gets discarded in favor of the what. So, our infatuation with the end times should be less about what, when, and how things will happen, and more about how we live. Second observation, which is the same as the first. 
the way the world will be is a clue, a glimpse into what the church is to be involved in working toward now. Does that make sense? The way the world will be, when we look and say, okay, what is this new heaven and new earth going to look like? What are the values of it? What are the practices of it? What are the things that you won't see there anymore? What are the things that you will see? That gives us a glimpse, a clue. And you take that, and it's so the future is saying, church, set your eye on that now. Do everything you can to practice, endorse, and see every, as much now as will be true then. That's what we're shooting for. Now, we're not going to, I'm not saying that we actually, if we just get enough of that done, we, we sort of force the future into existence. We're not going to work our way there. But we live in parallel to what will be. So, for instance, I mean, simple applications that most of you probably don't even need right now, but if we see that in that new heaven and that new earth, there's no racism. One, one person is not valued over another person. That's one of the reasons the church says today, the church will always stand against that kind of hatred. Because that's not kingdom of God stuff. That's not a value that's in the world God is going to create. It's not something that's consistent with the heart of God. For any person to be devalued is totally in, 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 in opposition. It's contrary to the heart of our God. So the church is about resisting that. People are not oppressed in that world. People have opportunity in that world. So the church is about helping people do better, get ahead, move. People are not going without uh, all they need in that world. So the church is involved in dealing with poverty in this world. Do you ever wonder, like the church, the, we say all the time, poverty, poverty, poverty. We should be against poverty. Let's help the poor. But I don't think we spend enough time helping people understand why and how critical that is. Why do we care for the poor? Aside from the obvious, obvious there's something going in our heart. We just know it's wrong. The way that makes sense to me, and we put so much energy behind that, is because there will be no poverty, no lack of what you need to have a reasonable uh, existence in that world. And that world gives us a glimpse, what will be, gives us a glimpse into what the church ought to be working for now or aligning itself with now. That's why. Yeah. So just enough of that. We can talk more about that. But to the degree we can understand what God is going to create after this transition happens, we can see what the church is to be working to build today. That gives us a glimpse into our duty, our busyness, what we're busy uh, doing. So third observation. I've used these words before. These just a little phrase that helps me put all that stuff together. So I say to the degree, it's terrible sentence structure, but purposefully. Uh, I did it on purpose. To the degree that we can be what we will be, we should be. Does, you get that? To the degree we can today be what we will be tomorrow, we should be. Now, there will be no cancer in that world. But I can't demand that in this, well, I can demand it, and by miracle it might happen, but with any sense of confidence that you're going to walk out change, we don't, it takes a miracle. We can't, 
uh, it can't be everything that we will be then by demanding that kind of stuff today or other things like that. It's maybe not the perfect illustration. But we can decide that there'll be no more uh, double standard in the church or in the world. We can decide that, hey, if there's not going to be a limitation based on your gender and certain roles that limit you or sort of um, project you in the future kingdom, and if that was actually those limitations or any limitations, for instance, women in ministry, you know, are the result of the fall, as Scripture says, then we can have a church that doesn't practice those kinds of limitations because that's something we can decide today. Now, again, hear me. I might be wrong on that issue because there are really brilliant people and we would disagree, and I think their argument is substantial. But I'm just giving that as an example. You know, at least we have a reasonable, fair, intelligent conversation and live together in peace. But my argument for that is, I don't think that's what it's going to be then, so we can control that it's not that way now. To the degree we can be what we will be, we should be. Uh, so if we're sure something will be true in the new heavens and the new earth, then it's possible for us uh, for it to be true in our present world, we should work to make it happen. Invest and exhaust ourselves in making sure that those things are true now, whatever we see coming. And the fourth and last one, and then you'll get out of here about 10 minutes late today, is to just remind ourselves, and again, I'm saying the same thing so many different ways, but that there's a connection between the kingdom of God God or the reign of God that will come in the end or what's coming after this time. There's a connection between that kingdom and the kingdom of God that is here for the taking now. They have something in common. What they have in common is the reign of God in the hearts of people. A yieldedness to God, to the agenda and the values of God. In that day, that's going to be the normal, natural way of life. There'll be no more contending with your broken nature when that day comes. We'll all be what God always intended for us to be. Oh, I long for that day. There's no more failure and frustration and try, try, try and brokenness and sin and temptation. And our brokenness no longer dominates us. We're no longer led by our insecurities and wounding people. I long for that day. But the kingdom of God is graspable now too. And it comes in moments and decisions. It can be entered. Anytime one of us chooses in any moment or decision to say, I am going to yield to God's preference right now. At least for a moment. We enter the kingdom and the kingdom enters us. So you see that the reign of Christ is what those two times and those ideas of the kingdom have in common. And so Jesus says the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is also at hand. It's there for the taking. Enter it by force. Choose it. Let it enter you. So again, the idea of the, of the eschatology informing the way we live today and being linked that today and tomorrow are are linked. We have this saying that has become more popular lately. I've heard it more and more lately. I've used it more and more lately. And it goes like this. You've heard it. Hey, it is what it is. 
Deal with it. You know, it is what it is. Use that anytime in the last month or heard it. It, it is what it is. I think NBA players use it twice as much as anybody else. It is what it is. In other words, in other words, the reality you have is the reality you're stuck with. It is what it is. You can't change it. It is what it is. You can only learn to cope with it. Why? Because it is what it is. Eschatology, the study of the future that God has for us, reminds us that though it is what it is, it isn't necessarily what it's going to be. Maybe it is what it is, but it ain't necessarily what it's going to be. Eschatology reminds us of that. It is what it is, but it isn't necessarily what it has to be. That's the message of the church, isn't it? It is what it is, but it doesn't have to be like it is. Drug addicted. Yeah, it is what it is, but it doesn't have to stay like that. Dominated by greed. It is what it is, but it isn't what it has to be. Trapped by prejudice and brokenness. It is what it is, but it isn't what it has to be. It doesn't have to be that. Eschatology reminds us of that. And we may be stuck with a reality we have for a time, but when a healthy missional Christian shows up in that reality, where a healthy missional church is involved in a community, the resignation, the, the defeat in that it is what it is statement begins to fade. The force of it is weakened. Because eschatology, the study of the end, changes the way we see things, doesn't it, Curtis? It changes everything. Replacing it is what it is with a determined hope and plan to be able to one day say, look now, it no longer is what it is. It no longer is what it was. In fact, it's becoming or has become what it will be. All of that housed in the study of eschatology. Surprise, surprise. Let's pray.